Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. I'm here with Dr. Daniela Seif. Uh, Daniela, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Now, a video of yours was forwarded to me by actually a former guest and regular listener, Jan, if you're out there, uh, your RSA talk on, on the topic of trauma. And I loved it uh, for a number of reasons, which maybe we can get into. And yeah, and then Redmore reached out to you. You said you'd be on the show. And here we are. So thank you. Yeah, it's great. To, it's great to have an opportunity to talk to a different and a wider audience. And yeah, thank you for asking me. No, that's, that's great. So trauma is something, you know, I've worked with a lot of my own trauma. It's a, it's a topic I've got huge interest in. Um, but I'm aware, like for some people out there, uh, maybe it's, it's useful to start with a, a definition uh, of trauma and, you know, what brought you to this topic? When, well, firstly, there's the kind of physical trauma that when you look trauma up in the internet, you get kind of A&E and, and, you know, kind of car accidents and kind of physical injuries. But if you get onto kind of emotional and psychological trauma, you know, PTSD people are getting much more aware of. And, and that usually refers to people having experienced very kind of pronounced, dramatic, terrible events. But as I see it, trauma is much better defined. Trauma means, if you look at the roots of the word, a wound. So as opposed to looking at the events that cause that, it's better to look at whether you're wounded and the effects of that. Because two people can experience the same events and they're not going to respond in the same way. So trauma kind of occurs where the events meet that person. It's, it's at the interface and it's in the long-term impact. So we, many people have got events in their lives that are incredibly painful and that leave them with pain, with grief, with loss. But that doesn't necessarily, that's part of being human. That doesn't necessarily turn into trauma, whether an event turns into trauma is about whether it starts shunting us onto a different pathway shunting us onto responding to ourselves to other people to the world in a different way and that depends a lot on on you, what resources you have um if you've got really good kind of grounding emotional grounding if you've had kind of great childhood and then something happens you're much more less likely to get shunted of course than if things have been very difficult early on it depends on the support you have at the time it's a bit like uh when you break something i've ripped two i've had two kind of injuries so i've ripped an achilles tendon which is potentially would have if it hadn't been treated would have left me really really compromised i'd have you know never walked properly again but it was treated and i barely have any effect of it i also unbeknownst to me at some point in my life uh, ripped one of the ligaments in my knee completely. Didn't find out about it till many, many years later. And because at the time, whenever it happened, it wasn't so painful that I got it treated. And I could keep going. I ran a half marathon. I did various things. But the long-term impact, actually, of the knee ligament that never healed is much worse than the long-term impact of the Achilles because the Achilles was tended to and it was treated and it's fine. It was meant, it had time to repair. I wore a cast. It got, I did exercises to help strengthen it. 
you had the resources to deal with it. I had the resources to deal with it. With, with the anterior cruciate ligament in my knee, I just took painkiller. I think it happened on a skiing trip because I remember something that was very painful on a skiing trip. But it was fantastic skiing. I was very young. It was most comfortable in a ski boot. And I took a lot of Nurofen and painkillers and hobbled on. But it meant 30 years later, my back was absolutely stuffed because I'd, I'd slightly twisted out of shape. And trauma is that twisting out of sh shape. It's when the wound isn't tended to. And as a result, we twist out of shape psychologically. We twist out of shape emotionally. So trauma is in, in what happens to us. It's in the resources we have to meet it, and it's in what happens afterwards of, of how that is that injury is tended to afterwards. And so it's best defined really by its impact, by the impact on us rather than by the events. Right. The original events. Yeah. And it and, and so in your definition, it, it it shunts us off course or it sends us onto a different a different pathway, a different track. That that defines it as a trauma. Yes. Um, and it well, because Yes and no, because obviously everything sends us off onto a different track. The people we meet, the, you know, subjects often, you know, particularly good school teachers sends us off onto one track. I mean, all kinds of things send us off to a different track. But it sends us off onto a track that is then what I call a trauma world into this kind of altered reality that is built around our wounds. So it sends us off onto a track where we're, we've got more fear not necessarily conscious, we're not always aware of fear. So, you know, when you and I are crossing a road, we're not aware that uh, fear is stopping us from stepping out until the lights go red. But fear is stopping us from stepping out until the lights go red, but it's not conscious. We're not, you know, it may be conscious if we kind of blindly step out and have forgotten, right? And um, cars then come, but most of the time it's just there going, okay, you don't cross now, don't cross now, just wait, just so so there's a heightened but there's a heightened level of fear to people to situations to to the world we usually disconnect from parts of ourselves and we also develop shame and this kind of sense of being fundamentally inadequate we may not even be conscious of that either so i think it shunts us off to a different path but there and everyone's path will be will be different individual we're all unique but the path of trauma has these kind of three core kind of dynamics in it that that then compromise our lives, compromise how we interact with other people, compromise how we interact with ourselves, compromise how we see the world around us, um, compromise kind of our emotional life and, and, and how alive and we feel. So, so that's, that's how I would see it. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. And I can certainly relate to that from my own experience. Yeah. Uh, certainly the disconnection. Yeah, from myself. Yeah, and my own experience with addictions and so on. I, I was well into that. Uh, yeah, that would that would characterize my trauma world. Certainly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so then the question, you know, why, why have you taken an interest in this, in this topic? Uh like most people, I've taken interest in it for personal reasons, of course. Um, you know, on, on many levels, I had a great childhood. My parents were together. Um, I went to a great school. There was nothing overtly traumatizing 
in my childhood. And in a way that can sometimes make it quite hard because it's, it's hard to know what the issues were and it's hard to valid, validate. But my mother was a Holocaust refugee and she, uh, she left Poland on day uh, three of Hitler's invasion. They smuggled, they bribed their way across the border from Poland, um, out of Poland on, you know, as my mother said, give it another 48 hours, she'd have died in the concentration oh, wow. camps. So she brought with her a fear and a mistrust of the world that was profound. And she wanted that imparted into me because she, not consciously, I think she had no awareness. But I th now looking back on it, there was a sense of somehow, in order to, for me to be safe, not to trust the world would be a really good thing. So she brought that on one level. Um, and then there was stuff that come from, came from my father's side as well of the family. But it was all implicit. None of it was overt. None of it was, there was no, what you would call, you know, physical, what anyone would necessarily recognize as abuse. And so what happened with me was um, I got very, I was all, I got very interested in what makes humans being who they are. And I, I look back now and I think, well, that's probably because I was trying to work out my family, what made them who they were. And if I could understand it, would I find it easier to find my path through that or to find my path out of it in, in, in many ways into my own life. Um, and so I did that intellectually to start with. I got particularly interested in evolution, in anthropology, in how humans, you know, as a species came to be who we are and studied that. And it was very rich. I lived in Tanzania for seven years. I worked with cattle herding people. Um, it was, it, it was, you know, it was an extraordinary time and I wouldn't, you know, change it for the world. But internally, all through that time, I was really very deeply unhappy. And, um, and, there was and would you, were you conscious of it at the, at the time? When of you being were, deeply unhappy, yes. Uh, when you were cattle herding? I, yes, I was, I was conscious of it at the time. Right. I was con Yes, absolutely. And, and there'd be a kind of what's wrong with me. I'm, you know, doing this extraordinary thing in this extraordinary place. I was at the foot of the Serengeti, giraffe would wander through. I mean, you know, the would hear lions at night. I mean, it, it, it was extraordinary. And yet I was difficult to ever be fully present to where I was. And there was still this kind of deep, and at times I think today I'd have probably got diagnosed as depression, but you know, I now know that's not, I mean, it's not what it is. It was trauma coming through. It was all the kind of what I carried coming through. Um, and I, so I got to my kind of early thirties um, and there was a sense that if the second half of my life is going to be like the first half emotionally, I'm not interested. I don't want to live it. I don't want to go on. And it wasn't that I was overtly suicidal, but there was an absolute sense of, I mean, it, you know, I fantasized about it, but at times there was a sense of, you know, I don't want to 30, another 30 years of this. It's just, and I was back in the UK by then, and um, 
I started a therapeutic process because I think what I've been trying to do is I've been trying to understand from the outside, the kind of evolution in the anthropology is riveting and it does help us explain who we are. But I, having kind of separated from my emotions when I was quite young, there was a bit of me that thought, well, if I can understand it intellectually, if I can understand humans, right. then I'll solve things, right? If I can understand evolution and stuff, then I'll solve things. And clearly by my mid thirties, that hadn't worked. <laughs> and, and it sort of became of a sense of, okay, I've got to start looking in. I, I'm not going to get through this by just looking out. Much that I'd have loved to, because looking in is very frightening. And it's, you know, being asked to change. Because those things have got you through. They've got you, you know, to where you are now. So being asked to look at them and to, and to start kind of opening some of this stuff that we've hidden because we had to hide as children. Yeah. Um, is really frightening. And, and if I could have done it by intellectually, by continuing to study out there, I would have done, but I didn't. So it's been a 20 year journey. And um, what was the, what was the pivot then? How, 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 what can you, can you recall the moments when it started to click? You needed to go. In? I actually, I, what happened was my mother was 20 years younger than my father. Daddy had Alzheimer's and she had terminal cancer. So I was back in the UK and I started seeing uh, an acupuncturist. I'd only just come back to the UK from Tanzania. I didn't have much support here, but someone recommended an acupuncturist. And I saw the acupuncturist really to help me navigate my mother's death. And we'd talk for 45 minutes. And then he'd stick needles in me for five minutes. And he, it was incredibly helpful. I mean, I don't know how, you know, it was, a, I, my father had been married before, but I was my mother's only child. And my mother being a Holocaust refugee had no family in England. She had a brother in Austria, um, cousins who got left in Poland, who got brought up by their nanny. But I was my mother's only relation here. She didn't have a bid big network in that way so I had my half brother and my half sister who were fantastic in supporting me and in helping with dad who was senile but in terms of mum it, it was just me and so I and so I sort of started with acupuncturist where we did kind of a lot of talking and then I kept working with him after she died ostensibly about her death um, and navigating my way through through that and through moving back to England. And then at some point he said, you know, I think you need more than what I can offer you. Right. So um, that was how, how it happened for me. I think everyone's journey is, is different, right? Some people get to a place where they just can't go on. They've lost a marriage or an addiction has taken them to a place which is just untenable anymore. There's somehow, you know, life is too awful. So people come to, come to that turn. Everybody comes to that turning point in a, I had actually gone to see somebody when I was in my early twenties, I'd gone to see a Freudian um, who for about four sessions and um, had a kind of visceral reaction against what was happening and, and didn't, keep going so I think you know even early on it had 
That's interesting. So do you think you got a little bit of taste of what was down there? No, I, I think it's, I think the way that she was kind of operating was, there was a kind of shamingness. There was, ah. she was shamed. It was, there's kind of that system can be quite, quite shaming. So it'd be things like, you know, you brought your bag because you're, you know, want to tell me that you'll leave first. I'm like, I brought my bag because I've got a really crappy car. My PhD is on my laptop. If it gets stolen out of the back of my car, I will be driving to the Seven Bridge and jumping off it. <laughs> right, right. You know, we're in the middle of Shepherd's Bush. I'm not leaving my laptop in my car. Right, yeah. So um, a, kind of, a kind of highly analytical Freudian almost. Because Freud gets kind of crazy, doesn't he, later? But the early Freud, yeah, the stuff about yeah. this idea that we're... we're this romantic metaphor of you know that we're pushing down emotions I, that for me i i think that all of that is that's great so yes no very kind of quite rigid mm. and um and i had actually if i think about it even earlier i had gone mum had seen a psychiatrist who she'd sent me to and i was because we were getting on so badly when i was i don't know 1920 and um, presumably to sort me out. And he said to me, you know, if you, if you do see someone, you need to find your own person. You know, you need to find somebody yourself. And he said, you know, and I can imagine that things are quite difficult. You know, your mother carries a lot of stuff and I can imagine it's not easy for you. Which I think was probably not what mum expected him to say. Right. But it also gave me a taste. But I'd always talked. I'd always sought out people that I could talk to. I'd always had one or two friends who I kind of considered wise and had really nourished. And I'd, you know, read, been reading Siddhartha and Kyle Gibran and I, Herman Hess. And I'd been drawn to, to those kind of conversations. Right. So, okay. So it's... But but just I suppose you're dancing around the edge a bit, right? Yes, a little bit, yeah, yeah. And uh, and it took the acupuncturist. <laughs> well, it took also. I think you know my parents' dad was effectively out of it, and mum had was had died at this point. So there was a freedom at that point to start right. exploring as well for me. And there was a routine. Yes, I wouldn't have known where to start with with the acupuncturist. I mean, I I. Um, and though, yeah, there was a route, there was a, I mean, we all, you know, I think for a lot of us, there are opportunities that we hit at certain points of our lives and in the right moment with the right opportunity, we take something in us grabs it. Yeah. And we may hit that same thing at a different point in our lives. You know, people can say stuff to me, I can read stuff and it has no impact on me and then somebody can say it to me six months later and I'm you know my whole understanding has completely changed because yeah. I'm in a position where that fits and I think it's the same with with starting therapy I think people there'll be moments where it fits and they're open and yeah yeah no I, I think that's right and I just recall when I I first read an article, I think when I was 22, that defined a binge alcoholic, right, versus any other type of alcohol. And I read that article, I thought, yep, yep, that's me. I'm definitely, you know, so I was, I accepted I was an alcoholic in 
whatever, 22 years old, it, it took almost another decade before I you know, finally quit and got into AA and, and then found the trauma work. So yeah, those signals are around us, aren't they? We just, we just only become ready to act on them at certain points. And I don't think we can push it. I mean, I think we do have to have a certain strength and a certain experience and a certain trust, sometimes a certain desperation. But, you know, we can't go, right, I'm going to go and sort this now and I'm going to push myself into, into doing it now. We can do that and it'll work for a little bit. You know, we can say, right, I'm going to get fit and I'm going to whatever now. But if we're, you know, we all know how long most New Year's resolutions last, right? Yeah. When you're taking an artificial point in the year and saying, I'm going to do something differently. Not a point where you're necessarily ready, a point that kind of has arbitrarily been defined by the external world as a new starting point. Yeah. And we all, you know, some of the things that, that we may want to do maybe genuine things that would be great for us to do but doing it on a kind of external time schedule based on someone deciding it's not even midwinter right but someone deciding that 31st of december is a significant date doesn't work for a lot of people because they're not in the place to do that and i think it's the same with this you know we can something tips us and we open because it's very frightening working with trauma the whole point of the trauma world of these systems we put in place when we're traumatized are to protect us and the reality is that they protect us well enough that they've got us through till now so you know if i look at my anterior cruciate ligament of my knee whatever my body did to compensate for that rupture kind of work well enough for me to run a half marathon and to do whatever. But what it built up and built up and built up to the stage where, you know, I was in my late forties and it took me 10 minutes to get out of bed and do my, put my socks on because my back was so bad. And there was all kinds of, you know, I went to see a whole host of people about my back because I was, you know, I was scared about, yes, I could manage it because Half an hour after I got up, I'd be all right. But I thought, you know, if I'm like this at 48, what am I going to be like at 70? And I'd stop running and cycling and swimming and all these things that I love doing. And so my body had compensated for it and it had been fun. And then it just got to this tipping point, right? Yeah. Where it was the knock-on effects, the compromises that my body had to make because of this injury had just accumulated and accumulated and accumulated and they were getting expressed in symptoms elsewhere no one knew my knee i had no idea i had a knee problem absolutely which is a good yeah and that's a great metaphor for of course how emotional traumas work yeah absolutely none and and actually we don't all this and my knee i twisted it and it flared up really badly and i went to get a scan and the guy went, oh, well, of course, you've had a complete rupture of your ACL and it was never healed because it's completely in two pieces and there's a whole load of scar tissue. And then I went, you what? You went, yeah, you know, you, it's, I was like, right. And then I said, you know, well, might that have affected my back? And he said, of course, it'll have affected your back. Yeah. You're unstable through that. You've had to compensate. So it comes a point at which, but you don't know what point that's going to 
be, you know, with my knee and my back, I kind of soldiered on till 48, 49 or whatever it, it was when that came through. So it, our timings are all different. Our timings are all individual and, um, yeah. And I suppose the, and it, and you, you have to have the right conditions and the right resources to deal with it. Right? And, a lot of, a, yeah. and I think that's one of the, the tragedies is of course, is that some people may have some inkling that they've got a trauma or perhaps a lot of trauma to heal, but they'll take it to their graves because just the, the moment never arises, right. Where they feel like they've, they're resourced enough. Um, yes. The plunge within, right? And they don't, you know, there's a lot of good therapists out there and there's a lot of not so good therapists out there. And um, there is also, you know, you're not going to heal this stuff. And it's expensive and it takes time. Yeah. And you're not going to heal it when what's on offer kind of in the National Health Service. You know, it's stretched, it doesn't have money, we know. But, you know, six 12 24 sessions of cbt is not going to get to deep-seated trauma it'll it might help you it might act as a knee brace it might help you give you a bit of a brace but it's not going to touch the underlying problem in that shorter time partly because a lot of working with trauma people have got trauma is about trust and relationships they've been hurt in relationships um, with emotional trauma. They've been hurt, you know, they've been bullied at school, no one protected them. They've been constantly shamed, told they're not good enough by their parents. They knew that their parents really wanted a boy, they're a girl, or that they were a mistake, or, or they've been overtly sexually abused or physically abused. But, but the kind of trauma that, that has these long lasting effects that, that I've worked with most, you know, or they've been in a war situation or, you know, something's happened to them as an adult, but, but generally the, the events that leave us most traumatized are events that happen in relationships of some kind. Um, so to, and so what we don't trust are relationships. All our defense mechanisms are built around relationships. We may not be conscious about it, but we end up thinking, okay, there's something wrong with me for this having happened, because if I'd been better, this wouldn't have happened to me. So I'm inadequate. And I don't want to get into a relationship because I don't actually really want anyone. If anyone sees me too closely, they'll see that I'm inadequate. Plus, I just don't trust people because this happened in a relationship. So you have relationships, but they're never quite real or they're not with people that you're really going to care about. Because then if you lose it or you're treated badly, it doesn't matter so much. Or you're kind of trying to hide some aspect of who you are and not be what that is. And so the healing comes with taking the risk in a healing relationship. And that takes time. That is not something you do with 12 sessions of any kind of therapy. And so, yes, it's incredibly difficult because, I mean, that's why groups, I know you've talked about AA, you know, groups like AA can be incredibly helpful because it is so relational. You hear other people's stories. There is a, I'm not alone with this. You know, there's relationships that are supportive relationships that are built up of this isn't just me. 
Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I think it was a it was a landing place for me initially, because it did provide this, this caring space. Um, but even AA, in a sense, is kind of a form of CBT, right? It, it, it's encouraging different th- thought patterns, and different behaviours. Um, it doesn't talk about trauma. And that's why I ha- ultimately I, I had to, to leave that community behind and, and go much deeper with the trauma work. But absolutely, it was a, it was a fantastic yeah. place to start. And, and on the timing question, one of the sayings in AA is it takes 10 years to get your marbles back and another 10 years to learn how to play with them, right? And, and so from, from right from the start, really, I suppose I was being conditioned to expect this to be a multi-decade process. Uh, so th- I think that helped as well, you know, because we've become so encultured to want, you know, quick fixes and fast results. Yes, I mean, I think that, you know, and it, it's hard in today's world to to say to people. I mean, when I went, I, I got, I had done my first therapy session. I still got the piece of paper I took in and I had a list of, I was like, I want this sorted, this sorted, this sorted, this sorted. And I never want to have to deal with them again. I did have five exclamation marks after I never want to deal with them again. But I, you know, at some level, that was, I really like, you know, when I go to the doctor, I want something that's going to fix me, fix whatever's wrong with me. I wanted it fixed. And, and we do, I think, in our society. And we're kind of taught that we can have that and we should be able to have that. I mean, it'd be interesting to see you know, it's it's different now because we're all like, okay, are we going to get the vaccine that's going to fi- fix COVID nineteen? You know, at the moment, it's can't. We've got nothing to fix it, which is a very unusual and frightening place for us to be in in the modern world. But um, yes, it's a long process, and I don't know what to say. I mean, it. I don't know what to say about that because my heart goes out to. I don't know how you work with this more quickly. I think people do. I know therapists who work at depth and who do it, who, who, you know, it's for whom it's not a 10 year process. And yeah, and I think that might be, but the other metaphor I like is uh, from um, France Janov, who's the wife of Art Janov, you know, one of the therapists I admire the most. And he, she talks about, you know, it's the process of emptying a bathtub with a teaspoon. Yeah. Right. And and if you stick with that metaphor, you know, maybe some people's have got baths are more full of than, than others, right? So so maybe you can do it in, in less t- in ten years. But in in your book, actually, understanding and, and healing emotional trauma, there's there's something that I like. Uh I think it was Dan Siegel talking about that's because of the the right brain, uh, you know, is dealing with a lot of this unconscious mat- material that's involved in trauma, and, and there's no easy access. There's no easy access to this subconscious material, right? There's no fast access to it. So that is one of the reasons it takes so long because we, we don't have, you know, necessarily because we have to survive, we don't have immediate access to this material. So, and we can only allow it up in sort of manageable chunks at a time, right? So, so if you take that, then it makes sense that this takes a long time. And it's also like, you know, what you're trying to get to is how you learn to write with your right hand. You know, I've got my brother-in-law who I think would naturally have been left-handed, but was forced to write right-handed. Well, now to go back to writing left-handed, having been right, you know, written with his right hand for 50 years, you're asking people to make changes that are as big as that. You're asking them to learn another language. You're asking them to learn an emotional language that they've 
cut off from that they've disconnected from you know they've disconnected from whether it's the pain of the original wound or fear or you know willingness to be vulnerable whatever so you're asking people to to really learn things that are very you know that just aren't simple to learn you're trauma patterns so many aspects that patterns our perception it patterns how we think it patterns how we feel it's like learning you know to play a completely new sport you've never had any experience at or emotionally or to learn Chinese you know if I was going to learn Chinese now I'm you're you're asking people to move their whole way of being in some degrees and to some level and that can't be done quickly no I mean apart from um, yes I mean apart from getting to the pain that's been buried which is uh Alan Shaw I think does mo- a lot of the right book and the left brain stuff and talks about about the right yeah, Alan Shaw, where, yeah. where the emotions are processed and that the you know that's not it doesn't have direct access to language it has access to metaphor and to poetry to images to dreams but not to the kind not to kind of you know backwards and forwards discourse but there's also a sense that trauma usually occurs when our emotions are too much for us to hold they overwhelm us in some degree and there's no one to help us hold them and they're left kind of rupturing bits because you know it's it's just too too much for you know like you rip a muscle right when you're try to carry a weight that's too heavy for you um and so to heal we have to go back to those emotions but you've got to build up fitness to be able to do it you know if you don't you get injured in the same way that if you try and go to the gym and and suddenly lift really heavy weights you're going to end up injured you're not going to get any fitter right to get fitter you need to be lifting just a little bit more than you could lift last week. Yeah. And we don't know what that is when we're injured. You don't know what that is at the beginning. And at the beginning, you don't want to lift anything because you're too injured to do it. So you have to have a trust that somebody can help you do that and give you some ideas. But it, um, I mean, there are techniques and there's places which, which do open people up. To their wo- to their wounds very quickly and usually the effect is not terribly helpful you know people get re-damaged by it more and more convinced that exposing and exploring what they carry is a really bad idea um it, none of it's integrated if you can't integrate it you can't process it you can't begin to hold it begin to start to kind of compassionately put some hands around it and go okay this is what i carry (gasps) okay okay you know there's no healing and opening it up if if you can't start to do that if you can't have just some part of you that has enough separation to go okay okay i'll just just hold it gently here it's a very slow and actually what happens when you start with is you do tend to get quite flooded by it Mm. and that's why you you have you have a therapist who can hold it, yeah. and then through the structure that they're creating, you start learning how to navigate. Yeah, no, that's that's right. 
and I, and and we talked about resources. I mean, I was very fortunate at the time when I started. I could take. I mean, I did a lot of my early work in LA, and I could take months off at a time, and just cry right yeah. <laughs> by the beach for months, weeks on end. And that I, I'm very aware. You know, that's a that was a privilege that many people carrying trauma, you know, don't have, may never have. Right, that ability just to dive into it in that way. The only thing I'd say, because I had the same privilege, but the only thing that I'd say is that. I did, and it took me a long time to learn, is, is when I let myself feel the pain and cry, I find I come out of it much faster. So there's a sense of, I'm at home now, don't have anything on, I can, you know, I, I'm not going to fight it, I let it be. And there's a sense of it's something what that part inside goes, Okay, well, if you're going to let it be now, I'll come with you when you need to go and do X and Y. It's almost, and you know, I, I can't. I mean, I've personified parts because I think you know we're, we're relational beings. It's much easier to think of our psyche when we personify parts. But it almost feels like that kind of wounded, you know, the part that's when it goes. Okay, well, you paid me attention and validated me now. You've let me express. I'll meet you halfway, and you know, if you've got to go and do this meeting or you've got to get on a zoom call or you've got to do whatever but it's when we're the worst is when we fight it because we don't want to go there and 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 then you know your whole life is is i mean you know you can have months of it right yeah no and, right and i think again now i reflect on it i was I was very lucky in the early days because I had this month. Initially, I took a month off and went to the, this the, the what's called it, the Primal Center in in Venice and uh, California near Santa Monica, and I, I had this chunk of time off. And my and I just could not get to any kind of feeling, right? I just I come in and the ther- I remember David. What do you feel today, Richard? I, I don't know. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. And, and I was just like, I'm fine. I'm fine. Every day, every day, every day. And like three, two or three days before I was due to fly back to London, he told me to go watch a movie. This, this movie caught me. I cried in the movie. I came into the session the next day. I, you know, I was like, I cried. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, then, and then for that session with him, uh, you know, I, I cried my eyes out, right? And, and that was the start of the floodgates opening. And but when, when I reflect on it, I, I allowed myself, I got so mad with him. You know, I got so angry with him. Why are you telling me to ask? Why did you just keep asking me that question? I've told you how I feel. I, I don't feel anything. I feel fine. And, but <laughs> he just, he just held me. He just held me. He just held me. And eventually I cracked, you know? And I, so I think there's, yeah, there's so much in that relationship um, that's important, you know, when, when we're starting to heal. And I think it's such a similar story, although it took me rather longer. I, I go and see, see my therapist and he, you know, what he, I, and we, you know, I, I didn't do it in 10, I was doing once a week at that point. So I wasn't at a centre, a treatment centre, I was doing it every day. But he'd say to me, you know, and, and what do you feel? And I'd go, I think this, you know, and be telling a bit of my story. And he'd, I'd say, well, I think this, that and the other. And he'd go, I'm not asking you what you think. I'm asking you what you feel. And I'd go, I think that. And I had, and he'd go on and on and on. I had... I, you know, I was—I had no idea what he was asking me. I mean, none, absolutely no idea. I thought I was—I couldn't understand why he was getting my, you know, why he kept interrupting me to ask me what I was feeling. I was answering his question. Eventually, after oh, I don't know six months or so, he—he he, um, sits in a in an office chair with rollers, and 
came you know, right up really close. And he was like, I'm not asking you what you think. I'm asking you what you feel. And, and at that point, I turned around and went, I don't know what I feel. It took me six months to even know that I was so cut off in some ways from feelings that I didn't know what I was feeling. And even at that point, I did not want to go to feeling. Something in me as a child had deemed that, you know, although I was feeling depressed and we have feelings because that's what takes us in. But the feelings when we really think about ourselves and think back until our stories aren't there. You know, there's the feeling of I'm really depressed or I feel shit because I'm drinking too much or whatever those feelings are in the, in the present. Um, but even then understanding that, you know, everything in me was going, don't go there. It's not safe. You know, when you get there, you went clobbered. And this kind of, you know, child in me. And it probably, you know, I mean, the internal battles that took place about trying to get me to allow myself to feel in terms of what I carried and what my experiences were, were, you know, vicious. They were just vicious, some of those internal battles with, you know, the bit of me that wanted to grow and heal, kind of desperate and wanted the second half of my life to be different and wanted to live and wanted to find a way through. And the part of me that going, that is really dangerous. You're absolutely not going to do that. You're going to get re-traumatized. You're not going to be able to manage. Absolutely not a chance in hell are you going to do that. And if I have to sabotage therapy or you know, whatever, I will do it because you are absolutely not going there. It's completely madness to go there. You're going to be re-traumatized, you know, absolutely not a chance in hell that you're going to do that. And you get, you know, caught. For me, in the book, I interview a Jungian analyst called Donald Kalshed. And he talks about the internal system that becomes so protective that it becomes persecutory. So it's a bit like our immune system with AIDS. You know, the, the antibodies that are meant to be fighting off disease starts attacking ourselves. That's his analogy. And the defense systems that we build up in trauma start attacking ourselves when we look like we might just try to leave that system. So the minute that I was, might even hinted of going a bit more towards feelings, the attacks would come to try and sabotage that. And, you know, and they had a jolly good go at sabotaging the relationship with the therapist and all kinds of stuff. So you um, had a bit of that as well with your therapist? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, and some people do sabotage it. I mean, some people... Yeah, the, you talk about part, it in the book a lot. That protected part. You know, and, and we can't judge people because that is built up when we're our most vulnerable and when we're our most wounded. And the balance, you know, I just don't know what makes the difference between the balance between people who... There's another part that wants life enough that they will ultimately take that on. And people were the, that part that's determined to keep you locked in that protection, however much misery it causes you, is going to hold the balance. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a. I've often asked myself, like, you know, it's almost like, why was I picked to 
sift through all this crap you know well yeah it's an interesting question yeah i don't I, I suspect at least you sifted through it right you didn't get stuck in that system you right who, for whom that defense system was so strong you'd you'd never found your find your way out yeah, I mean, in some ways, I felt extremely grateful, but there have definitely been moments along the way where I sort of wish yes. ha- that balance hadn't tipped. That I'd say, to, oh, yeah. a, a sort of, sort of, in some senses, well, not I, you know, I was going to say use the term blissfully ignorant, but well, it's not blissful, is it? It's just had I stayed in my trauma world, right? You yeah. know, and I could have died in my trauma world, right? I could have lived a, I don't know, probably somewhat shortened life, but still relatively long life, uh, dissociated. And many painting additions and gone to my grave, right? Without probably ever forming a, 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 a good relationships. And yeah, I mean, I think of plenty of people in my extended families who, it seems to me at least, they they were born into a trauma world and, and stayed in it until until they died. Yeah. Uh, yes, I know. I, 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 maybe, I, cool. yeah. Well, I think many people in our society have. I mean, I think most people have had trauma, you know, of one kind or another, somewhere they felt not good enough, not wanted. You know, whether it's a society thing, right? You're not wanted because you're part of society that, you know, you're an immigrant, right, at the moment, or whatever the bills come in this morning. You know, even though, right, we're all, at one hand, incredibly grateful for the work people who aren't born here are, are doing in the natural health service and and all over the place and you know the richness that it adds but there's still a sense of the kind of underlying brexit you're not wanted here we don't want you or all kinds of, of ways that society also tells people that they're not valuable um and and so i think there's a you know it's very difficult in our society. I think that a lot of people have got some trauma of some kind or another living in some kind of trauma world. You know, whether it's young people who are, have to look a certain way because they're not good enough unless they've got a six pack or unless they've got this, you know, you're not good enough, you're not going to be popular, you're not. And being popular and fitting in is such a huge thing for humans because if you look at non-Western societies, if you look at traditional societies, you look at human evolution, anyone who didn't fit in with a group, anyone who wasn't accepted into a group would have died. So actually being alienated from your group is really, can be very frightening. You know, kids who are bullied at school, if they'd lived in a traditional society and they were being bullied and left out in that way, that would have been life-threatening for the psyche, right? Um, and so, you know, whether it's, yes, looks and kind of the horrendous increase in plastic surgery among young people and, you know, young boys taking steroids. And I mean, the whole thing is that everywhere we look, we're, we're we're not, there are a host of people who for different reasons are not being valued for who they are being told they're inadequate in some way. And when that goes home deep enough, you start building a trauma world around that. And yes, I think a lot of people are going to their, will go to their graves in that world. Yeah. 
and and when I reflect on this, I suppose evolutionary speaking, when we lived, our lives were sh- short and brutish. We, you know, that that wasn't necessarily a consideration for people, right? That you know, this wasn't people didn't necessarily have the time and space to reflect on these questions. It, it's, it, so it's interesting that it's sort of emerging as a, almost a theme, right? I mean, v- very recently, right? This, this, even the idea of us having become traumatized and there being an opportunity for us to resolve it. I think, um, okay, so there's a couple of things I want to say there. Firstly, average lives were probably quite short, but that's because child mortality rates are very high. Ah, additional. Yeah. So if you make it to 15, a good proportion of people make it to 60, 70, right? In fact, if you make it to five, I mean, the really high infant mortality, the highest mortality rates are in the first five years in traditional societies and probably evolutionarily too. So once you've made it to young adulthood, you may be having, you're probably not living till, you know, most people are probably not living to their mid 80s as we are now, but they're a great number of people who've made it to late teens will be living to 70s. So it's the early years that are... um, And I... I I mean, I'm... I, you know, worked with traditional people. Cattle herders, not hunter-gatherers, but 45% of kids dying before they were 15. So there is a lot of loss. And everybody has lost a sibling, a child, a cousin or somebody. But there are really, but firstly, everybody has lost it. So nobody's alone with it. And there are really good social structures to hold that. They're very good social structures to hold grief. There's very, um, there's rituals. There's, so I'm sure there is trauma and people, you know, kids that aren't wanted, kids that were born too close to a sibling that was nursing and that parents really couldn't look after. So I'm sure there, there was a great deal of trauma. But I think Sarah Hurdy, one of the interviewees in the books, goes, you know, a lot of people who end up with trauma today, in most of our evolutionary history, had they been treated in the kind of way that leaves them traumatised today, would have not made it. Hmm. So, you know, if you were not good enough, if you didn't get care you didn't survive. Right. So there were probably, so on one level. They didn't have to live a life of trauma world because they died early. You know, so, right. so one level there's that. Um, and secondly, yes, we do have, op- I mean, we do have options, different options today. Absolutely. There are, there's a different understanding, but we also lost our traditional roots for holding things you know somebody dies now nobody knows what to say they may go and say something quickly and then there's no we've lost a lot of the structures that would give people the support um which i think makes it you know a lot worse in many ways right right there's no yeah you know, because it's what happens afterwards, right? So if you think about what happens afterwards, 
the wounding if you've got social structures in place. I remember I was I I went back to visit the Totoku I'd worked with. I went back on holiday about seven years ago, and somebody, one of the families that I'd worked with, somebody had just lost a sort of seven-year-old child, and they were kind of doing the funeral for it. And the way that it worked was that she would sit surrounded by sort of family in in the household in the kind of corral, and a woman would approach the household kind of richly crying and the woman who'd lost the child would rush out and embrace the woman who was richly crying and they both cried together and then an old woman would come out and kind of put her arms around the woman who was had just lost the child bring her back in and sit with her quiet now for me the, you know it was very really extraordinary to see because what you had firstly was go- woman going absolutely going to the rawness of her pain and then having the support and being physically kind of held and comforted to calm down so she was going there and back and there and back and calm and all the women who were coming were probably at some point lost a child themselves so this was a way for them to remember and to reconnect to their grief as well as to be there and to say, I know this, I've supported it. It was a really extraordinary, very beautiful thing to witness. And there was just a sense of, we all know this. And we're kind of not share it, but we'll meet you with our own grief. Yeah. And, And we've, we don't have structures like that. Doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, it's wrong, but we're so kind of atomized and a lot of the rituals have gone. And so I think we get some of this from, we have to do find different routes through. Yeah. Yeah, there's, a, there's an awful lot in what you said there, right? <laughs> yes. And it remind one of the things it reminds me of. I can't remember who who says it in the book, but uh, therapist can only heal some um, someone up to the level of the healing they've done themselves. And it's, so it seems to me, if we're in a society where you know you just use the example of of grieving the loss of a of a child, for example, if people haven't gone through that themselves in an in an open way where they've really accessed their their feelings as they've gone through the group then they cannot be there for other close members of their community to allow them to have it so it's almost like unless you've got some critical mass of people in a community who have allowed themselves to feel their way through loss then you don't you don't you don't have the ability to have the space right at a communal level i think that's absolutely true but i also think that we don't the person who's going to be with us and come especially in our world doesn't have to have had the same experience as us. They just have to have just which is a terrible term, but they have to have know their pain and have worked with their pain, but the, their pain can be very different. You know, pain is pain is pain, right? It, it can be created by different things but it's pain. So somebody who knows their pain, even if their pain has come from a very different 
experience if they know their own pain and they've sat with it and they've been able to hold it they can help and hold somebody else in their pain even if it's a, even if the cause of that is very different right it's about holding the emotion rather than the actual event necessarily and so are you suggesting that in general traditional societies or in our evolutionary past we were better equipped to hold our own pain or at least the community was able better equipped to help have I, I mean I'm not really I'm not qualified to say I'm not um but I certainly think certain types of of pain yes and I think people I did read a book years ago saying that um when we develop anesthesia and started and painkillers and started to be able to suppress and deaden and blot out physical pain it kind of moved through to the emotional world and we started thinking that we should be free of pain it was a really interesting argument and i will go back to it one day when i i I need to I will be writing about pain and I'll, I know which book it is I know it is on my shelf here actually I know what the cover is can't remember what it's called but I know what it is in the cover was and and something about that made real sense because we le- we do learn about whether pain is tolerable or not for others whether it's to be expected there's a huge amount there's some really interesting research so you know if you're if you're somebody who works out you learn that muscle pain is quite a good thing right after a workout because that means you're going to get fitter and there was an experiment that was done where people were given electric kind of painful enough but not hugely painful electric shocks and they'd be paired up with uh it was done in a kind of experimental setting and they'd be paired up with somebody else who would be given the same shock but go oh it wasn't that painful so they'd rate it, you know, they'd rate it on a scale of one to 10, let's say they rated it at seven. They'd be paired up with somebody else who would always rate it like two or three lower than whatever they said. And what they found was when they were retested, they readjusted how painful they'd found that experience. And it wasn't just psychological because things like their skin conductivity and the actual nervous system had responded as though it was less painful. There was actually less nervous response, less nervous arousal of the nerve system once somebody had else gone, it's not that painful. Right. So we learn to, you know, my half sister loves really hot food. I I can't do it. I mean, I just find it, but people learn to love really hot food and then they look because that stimulates pain sensors right that is genuinely your pain system that's being hit when you eat chilies and some people a new tiny child is going to like chilies but you learn that somehow that pain is tolerable so i think that whether we've got to the a society where you know whether it started with anesthesia and and painkillers or not i don't know but it kind of resonated i kind of it it made sense as a historical argument i quite liked it you know i think we do live in a world where pain is 
shouldn't be and is unacceptable and nobody therefore is we don't learn how to sit with it and we don't learn some of the mindfulness med some of Cabot Zinn's work and the mindfulness meditation is a, is about accepting it a bit more and I, I suspect in non-western societies there is more tolerance for holding pain and for knowing that pain is part of life and that probably helps you respond to it in a less destructive way you're not maybe i don't know i, I mean that's when i was doing this research i was still being all intellect you know i was still like i'm not yeah. doing feelings i'm just going to weigh milk and see how much milk they take and do lots of number stuff and so so um i'll weigh babies and see you know which are the healthy ones and which aren't I, i'm i was you know wasn't really doing emotions at that stage of my life so so it's hard to kind of retrospectively retrofit some of my experience there in, in that way right um yeah i i must admit intuitively i'm not sure i'd well if you if if one took the argument that if if a if a culture is better at accepting pain then it's better resolving its early abuse and it's less likely to pass abuse down to the next generation you would then ex expect societies in the east to have less prevalence of child abuse and from my understanding is there's actually yeah. similar levels if not higher right so um although one of the things that one i don't if you've read um judith laidloff the continuing concept i don't no. know if you're familiar with that work but she studied a a, a she she was on a gold mining expedition as an anthropologist and came across this tribe in south america who uh who who it seemed had very low levels of very high nurturing and very low levels of child abuse from what she could observe um but interesting in that society they were very open for men in particular um but generally you know, uh, expressing grief crying uh, the men would cry like babies in the arms of their wives, right? That was very accepted. They were very, so that, that perhaps there, you know, so that would suggest there is this correlation between people accept acceptance of pain and lower levels of. Yeah, the people um, I work with, I never saw a abuse. man cry. I have to say, they were cattle herders. So, what you're already in a different. It's already a macho culture once you're starting to cattle herd. Cattle herders, I mean, right? People are you know raiding each other for cows. So you're already not uh, it, it's different to hunter gatherer you've got possessions you're going to protect them and you're going to try and get more of them so you've already got a different a different mindset yeah but i think whether you know i don't know about traditional societies and i don't you know i think it's a danger in in kind of romanticizing one way or another but i i do think that we do we are very bad at letting people be with their pain and supporting them in pain you know there's the you'll get over it or it's okay or it, it, you know we there's a lot of that that goes on and i think to you know for healing we need someone to go you know it bloody well wasn't okay you didn't deserve that whatever that is that may have happened because they had no choice you know it may be that a parent died when you were young it's not that somebody has overtly chosen to do something to you, but it may be that you lost a parent or a parent substitute for some reason or another. 
you're still going to feel that as a really, really deep loss. And, you know, what we tend to do in our society as opposed to letting people feel that. As we try, have a, you know, let's get you to feel better now. Why don't you have a chocolate or, you know, I mean, the number of kids that are given sweets when they're in pain, right? Or let's go and buy you a toy or yeah. you want to go shopping or whatever we're doing to say, let's get you out of pain rather than get you through it. Yeah. Come on, cheer up. Come on, cheer up. You know, because you're not like the starving kids. Yeah. They'd be thankful for what you've got. I mean, we're constantly, con- and that's where the wounding comes in because then you stop trusting your own reality. Then you start going, I shouldn't feel this way. There's something wrong with me for feeling this way. You know, I'm not a starving kid or whatever it is. I can't trust my emotions because I'm being told that actually I shouldn't be feeling this. And there's no support of it. So clearly I can't trust my emotions. Clearly there's something wrong and bad with me for having these emotions because I'm being told that I need to get out of them in one way or another. Clearly there's something wrong with me. Right. So, and then we're down, then we're in the root of trauma. Then we're thinking I'm in, I'm wrong in some way for what I'm feeling. Yeah. And that goes back to the start of our conversation in the definition here. You're here. We're describing what happens after the event. So it's not necessarily the event itself. That was the issue. It was the fact in this case, we're talking about, you know, let's say a, a child not being encouraged to have their feelings, explore their feelings after the event. Yeah, and to and to implicitly then be told that their feelings are not valid and that somehow they're they're wrong, they're not appropriate, and that they shouldn't be feeling that. Right? And the minute you start being told that you shouldn't be feeling something, then you start learning, you know, I can't trust my feelings because somebody bigger who knows more than me or somebody I respect or somebody I depend on is telling me I shouldn't be feeling this. So let me try and think because feelings obviously a really bad idea, apart from the fact that it's painful and I don't want to go to pain, but clearly I shouldn't be having these feelings anyway. So how can I trust them? And then you're done, you know, path that sounds like you went down to some degree and I went down of you don't know what you're feeling and feelings have evolved to give us information about our world. You know, is this something that's beneficial? Is there an opportunity here for me? Is there an opportunity to create a relationship, to grow, to be creative, to be productive? Is there a threat here? What's that? What is that threat? If we don't have feelings, we've lost a really crucial compass in our lives. If we don't trust them. You know, we're navigating without the kind of one of the key things that, that we have to help us navigate. We're, we've deadened that down. So, you know, we're already, our navigation system is really problematic. And on top of that, we've got this layer of clearly I shouldn't have felt that there's something wrong with me because we, our feelings don't, even if we're not conscious of them, even if you and I don't know what we're feeling, mm. they haven't gone away. 
So there's, you know, we start shaming ourselves for our feelings. Well, it's stupid that I'm feeling pain because I, you know, this and that, and I shouldn't feel pain about this. There must be something really bollocks about me to feel pain about this because, you know, and then you become ashamed of your pain. Right, which is the, the another element of the trauma world, shame. It's another element of the trauma world, you know? Yeah. No, that makes um that makes a lot of sense. And and how does this relate again to the evolutionary perspective? Because from what you so I get it, right? So so we get traumatized, we we, we enter a trauma world and um somehow we have less access to our feelings and that somehow compromises our ability to navigate our environment and to succeed and produce more offspring. And yet we do, we do know that to some extent what we describe as abuse has existed in human society for, 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 for a very long time. Right. So how do we, how do we reconcile? There are trade-offs being made here. You know, an evolutionary perspective. Evolution is all about trade-offs. When evolution talk about optimal, they're talking about optimal trade-offs. So, you know, you're a vervet monkey, the grey monkeys that, uh, of which there's lots. And there's a trade-off between how much do I look around for leopards that might pounce on me versus how much do I eat? If I spend too much time looking around, I'm going to starve. Spend too much time eating, I become food for something else. There's all evolution is is all about balancing trade-offs, and those trade-offs are all um, going to depend on the physical and social environment that we're in. So, if you're a monkey in an environment where, for some reason, there are very few leopards, spending a lot of time looking round for something that might pounce on you is not a good idea. Uh, if you're in an environment that there's been a you know, great explosion in predator numbers, then the wisest thing to do is, is to be looking around. Same, and it's not just that, it may be that if you're in a large group, you spend less time looking around because there's other individuals who will also be looking around, who will give an alarm call. So it's not all down to you, right? If you're on your own, and we know that as humans, if we're on our own, we're much more alert. You know, if you were in the old days walking through an airport on your own or somewhere, you'd probably unconsciously just be that much more alert than if you were the gaggle of 10 friends. Yeah, of course. So, you know, we're more vulnerable when we're alone. We probably spend much more time alone these days than we ever did in traditional societies. Um. But we're more vulnerable. So, you know, just like every other social species, our our protection has come from. You know, you're walking down a dark London street at night. You're on your own. You are probably pretty much like, okay, you know, scanning. Where's the lights? Where are, you know, okay, which is that side of the road's better? You know, especially if you're a woman, that side of the road's better lit. I'm going down that side of the road. I'm going to have my hand on my mobile phone. I'm going to, you know, if you're in a group of 10 people, you're barely going to think about it, right? So intuitively, we, we know that. So evolution's always been about trade-offs and the trade-offs are dependent on how dangerous your environment is, but also what kind of 
group and, and social resources you're in. Um, evolution ultimately, I mean, the ultimate trade-off is it will sacrifice emotional well-being in order to survive. Yeah. Right? So we will, you know, having, if you're in a dangerous environment, and that can be dangerous because there's a lot of predators around, it could be dangerous because your family don't really want you or you're an unwanted child, whatever it is. Being hypervigilant and anxious is a pretty bloody good idea. Because you want to look at where that danger is coming from, whether that danger is, you know, coming from a predator or whether that danger is coming from a member of your family who might attack you in some way or another. Being hypervigilant. Now, the fact that you're going to end up with anxiety and the fact that you may end up having a shorter life because the costs of anxiety might be heart disease or predisposition to cancer or whatever doesn't matter because it's kept you, you know, it's the lesser of two evils. Yeah. Cutting off from your emotions, even if your emotions are a navigating tool, if expressing your emotions was something that you got attacked for, then losing that navigating tool is better than risking being constantly attacked. It may be safer to lose your navigation tool than to be constantly told you shouldn't be feeling that you're not good enough because you feel that. That's not a valid thing to feel. Yeah. So, you know, you're making... With trauma, you're always trying to make the best of a bad job. And there's side effects of that. Yeah. And I, I suppose, yeah, I'm sort of working this through in my mind and I'm thinking about, if you think about it, a family level. So the parents might, you know, not consciously, of course, but maltreat a particular one of their offspring, right? And favor a different one because they, you know, they, they, they believe that this particular child has got a better chance, let's say. And so they traumatize one of the children because that's the trade-off they're making um, in order to optimize the survival of the family, right? So it's, it's, it's a, not conscious, you know, it may be this child is more like, I, mean, I read some, it was a newspaper article, who knows, saying that you know, the number of parents who actually have a favourite child, if they're really honest about it, is really, really high. They'll all say, no, I don't. And they're all, you know, the, the children who know who the favourite child was, right? And I can't remember what it was, but it was like, you know, 90% of cases, the children were right. I mean, it... You know what people say, and it may be that this child can go. We think this child could go further. It may be unconscious. It may be this child, you know, reminds me of my, you know, brother who I hated. I mean, some of it's working kind of at a psychological level. It may be, you know, I always wished I could sing and this child can sing. So, you know, how fantastic. I'm going to live my life through this one and I'm going to give this child all the resources because I get to live. Or it may be that this child can sing and, you know, I really wanted to sing and I'm really bloody jealous of it. And often all of that is unconscious. But yes, children will pick that up. And, you know, sometimes, I mean, during the Holocaust and times, people did have to choose, you know, Sophie's Choice, the film, it was, you know, 
if you were hiding in an attic somewhere and you had a newborn baby, the Gestapo turned up and your baby was crying, there were women who smothered their babies to save the other children. You know, that there are stories in war-torn countries of, of people doing that time and time again. I mean, those choices have had to be made. In in traditional societies, there's always the risk that, you know, food run, you know, there's a famine, the rains fail. There isn't enough food to go around. You try and feed, give food equally to all your children. They're all going to die. You're going to split your tiny amount of food. Now, un you may be unconscious, you know, well, she doesn't really like eating or, you know, she's got a huge appetite, you know, if I give her more. It's not necessarily that people are consciously thinking their way through it. But being a less favoured child in most of evolutionary history, when if there were tough times, there weren't always tough times, there'll have been periods that weren't tough, but if a drought came, would have been life-threatening. So today's children are going to feel that as a genuine threat to their lives. And you'll do whatever you can to change it. So if that means shutting down my emotions, because not you know, not admitting to any pain. I'll do that because I don't want to be the one that's going to be not fed when the, when the food runs out. Right. Yeah. And I think this is an important, this is important for, for my understanding has been that this, yeah, the, the, this idea that we shouldn't, you know, we should judge it through this. It, it's, it's useful to judge some of these actions through an evolutionary lens, right? And that some of these, what we might call poor parenting examples of poor parenting are actually um expressions of um a valid evolutionary strategy uh from our history and so this is this has always been part of our existence but i guess what's different now for us is that we can be kept alive for a long lifespan as you said earlier usually that meant you would die or you'd have a fairly short life now we're going to live for a long time. So we may have experienced some of these effects and we're going to live with, in this trauma world for, for potentially a very long time. And we have now the ability, uh, we have now the ability, and I think there's a, there's a quote in your book, um, there is no longer any doubt that psy psychotherapy can result in detectable changes in the brain, Eric Candle, right? So we, we know that therapy can heal us. Uh, and it seems that this is something we should really be embracing as a society because the collective happiness and well-being of, of, of everybody would improve if we did so. Yeah, I think two things I just want to say that quickly. One, the fact, you know, these, these evolved going back to the evolution just to clear up, the fact that something did happen commonly in evolution doesn't mean that it's right or it's a good thing or that it's going to create well-being. So the fact that people had to choose between, there have been times when mums had to choose between children, you know, but if we can understand that under certain circumstances that has happened, we can then help people navigate their way through it so that they don't act that out, right? So, so there's more support for women so that women don't, so there's more resources or whatever it is to help people not, you know, the more we can understand that, the more we can create the structures that mean that it doesn't get expressed. But yes, I, I on the second one in terms of healing, yes, but I also want to say healing is not what 
a lot of people think it is. Certainly not what I thought it was when I started my therapy process, right? Healing is not that I am fixed. I am not fixed. I still have my wounds. They still get hit. Only on Friday, it all got kicked off again, right? What healing is that I know that it's been hit and I have an insight and ability to hold that in a different way. So I have an ability to hold that in a way that means I don't act out. It's like my anterior cruciate ligament. It is never now. If it happened when I think it happened, I was 22. If I think it was like on that skiing holiday, it is never going to be a working anterior cruciate ligament again. It's just not. There's nothing you can do about it. It's had 30 years of, 33 years now of being ruptured in two parts and scar tissue. Can't be rebuilt. Can't be fixed. What I can now do are the exercises to build up everything around it to hold it in a different way. Yeah, and, and I think so. This is where I probably had the biggest disagreement in the book, actually, yeah. because and 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 I think it's Marion Wood, uh, yeah, Wood Woodman, Woodman, who, yeah, who makes this distinction between curing and healing, right? Mm. And she says, curing the pain disappears, yeah, you know, forever, and healing as as you described you know it's about being able to hold that pain and relate to it in a different way and 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 become whole right become whole with that that pain that exists within you and i I certainly i mean this is subjective right but my story about my therapy and the healing that i've done is that it's been curative okay and that certain aspects of of the pain that I have held have, 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 have collapsed, right? From my, you know, it's like they were held in tension and I've relived some of that early experience and they've, I, I always see it like some kind of quantum effect. I mean, God knows how it works, but this is just my intuition, right? I'm completely riffing here, but it's as if they've, they've, these sort of two, uh, these two poles have collapsed together and it's just, it's just disappeared and the pain is gone. And there are certain periods of my childhood now I could talk about and I can reflect on, I can relive, and I don't feel any charge whatsoever. Now, it's not like it's all gone, but as I work through it, more and more of it disappears. I cure more and more of that pain body, if you like. And so I, I, I think we can be more ambitious with our definition of healing and our aspirations for healing, and we can talk about curative approaches. Gosh, that's interesting. Um, That is not my experience. And in some ways, the experiences that wounded me and that have left scars and and left ruptures are part of of who I am and who I've become who I am. And um, although being able to hold them and relate to them differently. My path is still informed by them. The writing that I'm doing is still informed by them. And I, and I think for them to collapse would be, for me, a kind of disconnection from part of what's brought me to where I am now. And it would be um, somehow a, 
a cutting off and I, it may be that we're all different it's you know if if there's a sense of abandonment and then a whole you know if our early wound is is from having been abandoned and then later in life we end up being abandoned in a very different way you know maybe somebody retires who we depend on or you know somebody work that we depend on who retires or whatever it is for me the old wound is is there in that your reaction to the current experience is being uh, there's a feed-in from the old wound that means that you're not experiencing it as you would if you didn't have that particular wound yeah so it's there in that it's it's adding this extra layer this lens through which so there's you know certain things that are going to happen to me now that will be painful that I that aren't in the realm of my trauma and so I experience the pain as as it is I mean this I mean it's not quite true because everything is being colored by our experience so it's a kind of gross simplification but I kind of it's not got this whole layer underneath it that's that's exacerbating it and making it and augmenting it and kind of infusing it with a flavor of that past. And so for me, in the areas where I'm most wounded, if something similar happens, my reaction to something similar hits me harder. It's like there's a tender spot. Right. And, it, and so it hits me. It's like if, you know, if I've got a tender spot here, and something happens that hits here, it's more painful than if it hit me somewhere different. So it's still with me, but I can hold it. And I know that part of what I'm feeling is to do with the old wound there. Yeah. And that's, and I completely relate to that. Um, and in fact, I, and I understand that as what Arthur Janoff describes as resonance, right? You've got right. an experience in the present, which is resonating with some experience in the past. And you're actually experiencing both at the time at the same time, and it's got kind of fused somehow, hasn't it? The, the two experiences, the present moment and the and the past. But my experience is by by fully reliving those experiences in the past, they do, they do dis it does dis the pain does disappear. So true to Marion's definition, actually, I would describe it as a disappearance. And it doesn't pain. come back when you hit something. And it, and it doesn't come back. It never comes back again. Similar. You know, it's just like I have a proportionate response. I just. I think of it as like two bells, right? You've got the little, right. the little bell, which is your present moment pain, and the and the big church bell from your past, which uh, which is is resonating with the little. But the big bell doesn't sound anymore. I've just got the little bell, right? So it's just a sort of minor annoyance, and you know, it's something you know I deal with. And actually, then the, the mindful techniques, you know, the mindfulness techniques, and some of those more what you call sort of more present. Sort of yeah. those those techniques which are more focused on present moment feelings actually become applicable and effective um that's but yes yeah. i mean i think that's one of the things about trauma is that is that people's experience you know our roots through and the places that we get to are all different in many ways and it's about finding a place where your life is a life that's growing and expanding and there's a freedom to and where we're happy living with who we are and we're pushing our boundaries if we want to, if we're the kind of person who who is, you know, 
um, fueled by growth and fueled by learning, that we are doing that in a way that that has a freedom that isn't being boxed in by our trauma, um, and that our paths are, are different with that. Yeah, yeah, I, I think I think that's right. Um, but I, yeah. Maybe that's all we need to say on it, right? Is that, you know, we, we, we have different experiences of this process. Um, uh, but um, I mean, the commonality, it seems to me, is this ability to hold the feeling. Yes. That seems to be at the core of what we've both been talking about. And uh, it's then a, perhaps a diff, we're describing different ways of experiencing or, or, or sort of where we've gone to with it. Um, yeah. Which, 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 all the way back to your RSA talk, right? Uh, it hooks into something that I took away, which I thought was so powerful in that talk, and that was your invocation, really, for for professionals to become uh, trauma aware, or we might even say now pain aware, right? And and this vision of a of a society where we're prepared to um, acknowledge the pain in others, the trauma in others to talk about it to help to connect with others pain and trauma um and yeah, the fear you... that arises from that because i think you know it, we, it's very easy to focus on pain with trauma and we've talked a lot about pain but the long-term effect is usually this kind of fear of being having that pain again and it's the fear that actually drives us right so when we've got wounds that haven't been healed it's fear of having that wound exposed, of having that wound touched, of having being re-wounded, of knowing that we can be hurt in that way. Fear of being hurt in that way again is what's often limiting our lives. Fear of being exposed as somebody who's, you know, not worth it because they were treated in this way. So it a lot of it is about the the fear the the pain and and the fear and of being aware of it and yes i mean i think it would make a huge difference if we had a awareness of um how many people it's you know are are at some level having to navigate their way through that the hard thing is that most of us until we do this work aren't really aware that we're having to navigate our way through us so you might have an epidemic of depression or of loneliness you know, some of that loneliness is because we're so alienated from ourselves and we're cut off from ourselves. And some of the depression is, is coming from it. And some of the, so we have to some level recognize it in ourselves to be able to, I mean, we can hear about it and go, oh yes, that sounds right. I can imagine that happening. But to really be able to respond, we have to touch it somewhere in ourselves. But yes, I mean, I think it would make a huge difference if there was an awareness yeah and and i think you you were talking about it in the in the professions perhaps teaching and yeah um, maybe the police i mean i'm sure a lot of these professions are intuitively you know aware of a lot of this but i suppose having it as an open conversation uh and for me is in the business world you know i i'd love to have this become more common in our conversations in 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 the business world you know what the, the trauma and the pain that people are carrying 
Yeah, and the fear that they're carrying and how that is going to be affecting their performance and their potential and, and how they're interacting with people. And there was one, where was the part in the book where there was a, one of your contributors had done some economic analysis and compared the investment in dealing with childhood trauma and HIV. Um, and what was it for every dollar? Um, for every dollar spent on HIV research, Oh, um, was that is that Alec Nyhouse? Yeah, Alec Nyhouse, and I. Thought, I'm just uh, yeah. For every dollar on prevention of child abuse uh, and neglect, um, there's a hundred dollars spent on HIV/AIDS. Yeah. Um, and yet the impact of child abuse um, and uh, neglect are equivalent to HIV and cancer combined. So that's extraordinary, isn't it? Right. So child abuse, uh, the effects of child abuse. And now I, don't, I haven't researched this analysis. Yeah. I can't sort of pass comment on whether, you know, the validity of this analysis, but intuitively um, it feels, it, it feels like it could be about, it certainly seems feasible when you think about just the few you've listed, the depression, um, you know, suicide, um, divorce, you know, all of the, all of the, symptoms um that we know uh addiction yeah right, of people carrying deep pain yeah uh, what it costs society um and yet there's yeah there's not a lot talked about really well but it's also it's like there's the long term you know because what you're trying to do really to give alternatives is really to support families to be able to be there and to support people to have a sense of value, right? You're going to work with parents because then they can pass that, you know, to feel that they are valued by society, by the culture, by. Um, and it's much less, it, it, it's, it's much more nebulous to some degree and it's more hidden and it's more long-term and we are unbelievably bad at doing long-term things. You know, we're really, governments are really bad at it. We're really bad at it. You know, we can all respond to COVID-19. But, you know, the climate crisis is probably in the long run going to cause many, many more deaths and much more suffering. But it's not an immediate threat that's here. It's going to creep up slowly. And a lot of what happens with you know, child neglect, child abuse, whatever kind of way of relating to children that ends up being wounding, those effects are kind of long-term and they're hard. They're not a direct line to follow them, you know, and who knows when, when that is going to get expressed and when it's not going to get expressed. It's much less clear-cut. And we're very, very bad at. Yes, in the long term. I mean, if you look at the prison population, you know. Well, there's another example, yeah. The kind of rates of childhood trauma are, you know, through the roof in the prison population. You've got a very, very traumatised group of people who, for one reason or another, have not had the support that have enabled them to live a different life.
you know, who've ended up with a within a world that's that's because that was the best they could do. You know, that was their psyche body trying to create whatever was the best they could do in the environment in which they found themselves. But you're still talking, you know, several years, you're talking gaps and, you know, governments elected for five years don't really... Work on gener- intergenerational problems. Work no. on intergenerational... Yeah, that's right. And of course, HIV, you can solve in a single lifetime, right? You can, a cancer, yeah, you can, you, it's possible at least. Yes, and sense. it's very visible, you know, either the cancer's multiplying or it's not. Right, you, those targets are very clear. You can kind of tick it off, right? Well, we give this drug and this cancer goes away. Whereas when you're talking about trauma and the effects of trauma and trauma worlds, you know, how you measure any of that is incredibly difficult. Right, incredibly so again, it's, not that it's not that it shouldn't be done, but I think in terms of governments who like to be able to go right, well, we've done this, and hey, we supported this project, and give money to this project, and you get this result, because that's you know, if I can show you I've got this result, then you might reelect me. Right, so it, it's an easier sell than something that's much more subtle and much more complex and much more kind of intricately interwoven with kind of facets of life and a kind of much more kind of under the surface, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to see. Yeah. And of course this feeds itself and the less people have an intuition for how the, the extent to which people are whole, you know, the less visible it is, you know, so, so, um, and most of the people who are leading us are living in trauma worlds and who yeah. are wounded. I mean, it you know, it's visible out there, you know, inability to be vulnerable, inability to say I've made a mistake, an inability to say, I don't know. I we don't know what the best solution is here. Yeah. You know, that you can see the defenses and the bluster and whatever yeah. it is. You can see it. So we're not being led by people who understand that. And, and for good reasons, because actually, if you're emotionally healthy, would you go into doing that? Probably not. I mean, who would want to be in that world? If... Yeah, I mean, the whole system sort of feeds itself, doesn't it? It's, it's the whole, sort of, the whole it's, system feeds itself. So, so if you've got people at that level who are all at some level living within a trauma world of one form or another, whether, you know, they're not going to be putting out stuff to help with that they can't yeah, yeah. They can't see it they can't see it well no yeah they can't see it and and perhaps even if they have an inkling of it exists they don't want to draw it too close right they don't yeah because it's fright as you know yeah. they don't want to spend a month in venice be you know they don't want they have chosen a different route they've chosen to go a route where they might have power where they get status, where the feelings of inadequacy, the feelings of, you know, I'm not valid, the feelings of my feet get kind of, you know, put aside under, well, you know, I've got, you know, status here. 
they some of them, not all of them of course there's some you know there are people in leadership roles who are not coming from that place absolutely but we do seem to have a spate at the moment of leaders who appear to be incredibly emotionally healthy right but yeah but you in some ways you can pick on the leaders but then it's oh, we've the, elected po- the populace them. who you know who votes for them and allows themselves to be led by them right i mean yes yeah. they reflect something about about so it's a chicken and egg thing they do reflect something about about where we are with with you know there's an identification with that for certainly because you know it speaks to to something in us that's the voters that are unhealed for sure yeah which is why again i think that's why i think it was it was the right message for you to end that talk on is like let's and part of it is to start with to making it conscious because when you do live in that reality which is what a trauma world creates you don't step you can't step outside it to see it for something else you know my training as an anthropologist was very much about you grow up in a society which you think is normal, right? And then you go to other places and, that, you know, start with they're all like exotic. So there's the kind of the classic kind of early anthropology stuff. of Oh, my God, look, people don't eat this and whatever. And then you start thinking, well, our country is as much has its own culture and its own norms and its own ways of being that are as weird as everyone else's. We just don't see it because that's our normality. I mean, in a way, now is a very good time to become aware of it with COVID-19 because the normality that we all had in January is no longer our normality. You know, if you and I met in person, we would not be shaking hands, which we would have done for our entire lives or whatever we've done, right? Something we absolutely took for granted as a normality it, you know, that there were no questions. Whether people will ever shake hands again is an open question. I mean, you know, um, an American guy who said it'd be great if, if you know, we all did fist bumps or, or namaste, you know, and that shaking hands is really, you know, not a great idea on any level. So, so 10 years of trauma to learn, <laughs> therapy to learn to hug people. <laughs> yes. I'm damn well going to be hugging people. <laughs> I've paid my money. <laughs> Um, I did see this amazing thing where there's somebody who created this this screen this uh of plastic thin plastic with armholes for two people and you've gone to his mother with this screen and they've given each other a hug <laughs> when there's plastic kind of completely separated it was it was on yet yesterday somewhere on the internet I thought yeah that was great but you know what was our you know what is our normality now even if it reverts after whenever, is very, we all know what it's like when now our normality is is changed and we have to question what we did. We have to question getting on really, really kind of overcrowded public transport. And we have to question shaking hands and we have to question, you know, queuing up to people in stores. Um, So some of those things that, but we would have never questioned it had this not come along. There was no way for us to, to question it. It was just our normality. We just completely accepted certain ways of behaving. 
And so with trauma worlds, you know, making it conscious is, is a really important thing because when we're living inside of it, we have absolutely no, we can't see it for what it is. It's our normality. We have to, you know, I remember when, when somebody pointed out shame to me, I'm like, what is, sh-? I had no, I was so covered in it. I just thought it was. I had no idea that it was this phenomenon that, that, you know, affected us this way. Some of the insecure attachment patterns, when I read Daniel Siegel's book originally, why I put him as an interviewee me in my book, and I first read about the insecure attachment patterns, and it was like, oh my God, these are patterns that kids follow. That's me, that's me, that's me. Oh wow, those are patterns that kids follow. I had no idea. I just, it wasn't the norm for me. So yes, sometimes we need that pointed out that it does help to open up then the conversations and the feelings and they work. Absolutely. Yeah, I think so. Um, and, I li- and I like the trauma world metaphor as well. Yeah, yeah. I think that's another good contribution to raising consciousness about it. Yeah. Good. Well, God, this has been uh, almost two hours. I've loved it. Maybe he's going to listen to this. So he's going to listen covered, to two hours. We've covered, we've covered uh, cattle herding in Tanzania. And, yes. Um, um, uh, yeah, your own journey with trauma at, uh, and, uh, yeah, some of the uh, evolutionary aspects, which I, yeah, which is certainly new to me understanding it. So uh, I've really, really enjoyed the conversation. So did I. Thank you. Yes. I really, it was, that was great. Good. And I want to uh, grab the book for people. So I'll put it on screen for those who are watching. Um, um, understanding and Healing Emotional Trauma. And it uh, is a series of, it's a series of 10 interviews in which yeah. I tried to people whose who's really way of seeing the world had had a big impact on me and a big impact on many people in terms of understanding trauma. So it's a series of interviews for those people trying to make their work accessible and, and um, asking them the questions that, that hopefully will resonate with other people and will help open up some of this for people. Yeah. And what I was saying to you before we came on the show was for me, it was a bit like reading. There are 10, 10 chapters here, like 10 mini books. It's so so dense it's so condensed the material it's like those blinkist book summaries right so so if you want a sort of you know a a compendium i suppose of some of the best thinking in the field yeah in one book i think it's brilliant um and then there's the the website right your new website your shiny new shiny new website (laughs) website so what What's the URL for people who are listening? The URL is um, www.daniellaseif, which is one L. Well, I'll be, it'll be on the thing here. Yeah, but as well, yeah. daniellaseif.com. And I'm writing another book, so I'm well, possibly more than one at the moment. It appears to be finding its own route down different passages. Into, um, so, yes. And will that be another dialogue style or will it no, be your that own will words? Be, that will be be my my own words of having it'll probably be the expansion of the trauma world concept ah yes and really drawing in that and then exploring shame and and fear and disconnection as part of that and then what what healing means and and working with that but um 
we will see it appears to have a slight life of its own at the moment so the um yes but that's the the plan is to try and really portray that in a way that can reach people and, and as you say help bring some of it to awareness and, and help ring bells so people can start delving in excellent well i look forward to that and thank you once again for a scintillating uh one hour 53 minutes uh yes thank thank you daniela uh thank you very much thank you the being human podcast was brought to you by first human for more on first humans human focused coaching and leadership programs head to firsthuman.com